G'day wherever you may be around the world and thank you for your company on truthtoyou.org. That's truth number two, letteryou.org. Joining me this hour is one of the world's foremost authorities on missionaries, cults, and the Jewish community is director of education and counseling for Jews for Judaism in Canada. The website is jewsforjudaism.ca, jewsforjudaism.ca. Welcome to the program, Rabbi Michael Skobach. Great to be here, Jono. Wonderful to have you back on the program, my friend. Now, listen, what we did, what we were talking about last week, uh, and we were talking about the rules of play for what we were going to do. We were wanting to investigate the supposed 365 prophecies of Jesus in the Tanakh. Brought to you by God. There it is, 365, one for every single day of the year. Although there are many different lists and, you know, some of them vary from 300 up to 600, as you were saying. <laughs> so I want to tell you a story and see what you think. You ready? Shoot. All right. Facebook. Don't we love Facebook? Boy, Facebook has has all these little, you know, secret compartments in Facebook. And one of them is in the, you know, you've got your messages. You can click on messages there on the, on the left-hand side. It takes you to your inbox. And it says to you up in the left-hand side in the inbox how many messages that you have. And then it has next to that other what is, have you ever noticed that? I never noticed that. Do you? Uh-oh. So many people don't know there is this other section. What do you mean other? Have I got messages or not? These are these are my inbox and it's got messages and then other. What is other? So I thought I better click on other and see. And there's all these other messages that I hadn't got. <laughs> why? I don't understand. Why are they? Now, the reason why I think uh, they're in the other section is because perhaps they're not uh, they're not friends they're not uh, registered as friends on Facebook, and therefore they get put into the other category. Okay, so I have a look at that, and I've got a message there. There's a few messages, and one of them is from an individual, and, and I'm going to read it to you. Ready for this? Sure, go ahead. I'm, I'm curious. Blessings, Jono, it begins. I thought this might interest you. And so I thought, well, okay, things that might interest me. I'm interested already. Uh, it goes on to say, I just heard about this first time ever free love free things. Michael, what, do you like free things? <laughs> this is free. Okay. First time ever free Messianic Prophecy Bible. <gasps> and I thought this is great because we're doing Messianic Prophecies at the moment, you and I. This would be gold and it's free. And then this person says, I heard about this first time ever free Messianic Prophecy Bible that is going to explain the Messianic Prophecies right in the text of the Bible. It goes on to say the Bible, I know, the Bible will be in many different versions and languages. This Bible will really help us to grow in our Christian slash Messianic faith, understand the Jewish roots of our faith, and learn about Messianic prophecies. It is free. It's a free offer. Uh, This person says that I have accepted, and I think you should too. The Messianic Prophecy Bible Project will be distributing these Bibles to Jewish people around the world who do not believe in Yeshua. Just click on this link. So I thought, well, this is great. You know, I, this would be, it's free. I mean, <laughs> I, you know, can't why be, not? So can't I cl- be free. It will. No, I clicked on the link anyway. And well, first I went and checked out this person uh, who sent it to me. We're, we're not friends on Facebook, but I went to their, um, their Facebook page. Lo and behold, they work for the company. I thought, hang on a minute. You just, they said to me, oh, I just found, I just heard about this, this free Bible. I, I took up the offer, and I think you should too. I go to that page, and they work for it. Of course they heard about it. Anyway. I, I guess it's called promotion. It's, it's exactly what it's called. It's called promotion. Anyway, I clicked on the link. I went to the Messianic Prophecy Bible Project. I clicked on About, and guess what I saw? Oh, I think you saw my face. 
there's a picture of you. <laughs> How about that? There's a picture of you there. And, I, and I, I, I thought this is too good to be true. Now, this is what it says. Why the need for this Bible? At present, it goes on to say, there is no Bible that can be used in evangelistic outreach to unsaved Jewish people that exposes the truth of the Messianic prophecies in such a way that Jewish people understand and relate to. Searching for the promised Messiah in a current Bible can be confusing for a Jewish person due to unfamiliar Christian terminology and the lack of explanation of the Messianic prophecies. When a Jewish person goes to a family member or their rabbi for answers about the Messianic prophecies, they are told how Yeshua is not the promised Messiah, and so they give up their search. Add to this confusion the fact that for over 15 years, anti-missionary organizations such as Aish HaTorah and uh, Jews for Judaism has uh, have been systematically attempting to discredit Messianic prophecies and uh, Jewish faith in Yeshua. They publish anti-missionary material with such inflammatory headlines as dealing with mess- <laughs> dealing with missionary <laughs> tactics. Jesus was not our Passover lamb, the missionary menace, the real Messiah, the battle for the Jewish soul, and why Jews can't be for Jesus. It is clear that an accurately researched Messianic prophecy Bible is needed to reach unsaved Jewish people. Now, it says here, uh, it's got some samples of this, of this hideous anti-Messianic literature, uh, and, and it refers to people who distribute such, and I was surprised at this, it refers to people who distribute such as the enemies of our faith. I thought, wow. The enemies of, and you must be enemy number one because there's a photo of you. <laughs> now, a couple of things about this photo says click on this to read. First of all, your beard was bigger then. What happened? Well, you know, it's summertime now, and I just got my hair cut today, and I had to chop it off. This picture was obviously taken in winter. There's a pretty healthy beard going on there on Michael. Uh, Scoback, but I clicked on this link to have a look at what it says, and of course it's entitled Operation Let My People Know. It says uh, Jews across the nation can receive vital counter-missionary information for free. Jews for Judaism, the world's leading counter-missionary organization, is launching a powerful new campaign called Let My People Know. This campaign, the first of its kind in the world, is geared to make Jews missionary smart by giving them free of charge vital materials and information that they can use to prepare them for any encounter with any of the uh, over 900 missionary groups that are targeting Jews today. And in your hand, there's a picture of you and you're holding some sort of prehistoric device. What's that? A <laughs> cassette tape, probably. It's a cassette tape! <laughs> but now these things are still... Now, tell me, tell me, you know, technology has advanced and we've got, what, what do we have, MP3s now? We can download them off the website? What, what's going on? The cloud. It's in the cloud. <laughs> It's in the cloud. All right, so Jews for Judaism, they're, they're, they're up there with technology. They've got it under control. You can go to the website and you can find these things. Now, look, I, I continued on. Now, before I do continue on, they refer to you and, and people like your, like your fine self as uh, enemies of our faith, and they refer to you as anti-missionaries. I go to this, uh, this newsletter of yours, and it refers to counter-missionaries. Before we continue, do you want to just tell us the difference between the two? Well, you know, I, <laughs> I think that uh, it's a matter of semantics. Uh, I, I'm just personally turned off by the term anti-missionary. Um, I'm not really anti-anyone or anything. 
I actually see myself as a missionary, if you want to put in those terms. But I think it has a different kind of edge to it. Anti just sounds negative. It sounds uh, hostile. And you know, well, would you agree that that any missionary of any faith have the rights to missionize, have the right to evangelize, they have the right to tell other people about the faith that they so sincerely believe in. Is that sure? I mean, you know, one of the things that you know many missionaries can thank me for is I often have to defend them because you know so many people, unfortunately, in the Jewish community are so uh, scandalized by what these groups are doing. You know, that they would like to, if they could, just close them up, shut them down, and force them to stop doing what they're doing. And I always have to explain, you know, thank God, you know, we're living in a free country, and people have Mm. a right to practice their religion. And, uh, you know, they assume that our organization is there to stop people from evangelizing, and Mm -hmm. nothing could be further from the truth. We don't engage in those kind of activities. I think that the the term anti-missionary you know, has that kind of ring to it that, you know, is somehow dedicated to stopping people from doing what they're doing. And uh, that that's really totally not true. So I think that, you know, if the word anti-missionary can, carries that connotation, that our work is to prevent people from uh, sharing their faith, then I think that it's a, uh, it's a term which to me is not accurate and I think it's inappropriate. And that's why counter-missionary has the, to me, the connotation, the ring, that we are basically uh, giving a, another perspective to mm-hmm. what they're teaching, meaning that they have, I remember when I used to watch as a kid uh, Saturday Night Live, so they had a, a segment called Point-Counterpoint, right? So that the, the missionary has a point, a perspective, and mm-hmm. so as counter-missionaries, we are countering what they're doing we're not and so what you're doing is you're just saying we would like the opportunity to exercise the same right that they are exercising yes and i think that uh you know our work is really borne out by a tremendous amount of experience and uh you know the one thing i mean i've been now involved in this since really 1973 i mean when i first got involved with this kind of work but really um, full-time since 1983. So we're talking about, you know, a long time and a lot of experience, and it's been corroborated by my colleagues. And the one thing that we've found uh, over the years is that, you know, unfortunately, the many, many Jewish people who are swayed to embrace uh, the Christian faith, mm-hmm. um, they really have not made informed decisions. I think right. that uh, you know, there are people who generally uh, may have had some kind of exposure to Jewish practice. Um, typically, uh, you know, they may have gone to Hebrew school, and often their families um, may have had um, some kind of Jewish practice, like celebrating Passover or Hanukkah. But really, the, the, we're not talking about people that have had a very sophisticated and uh, serious kind of uh, dip in Jewish learning mm-hmm. in Jewish education. And what happens is they, uh, at some point in life, either as a teenager or in their 20s or 30s or 40s, have some encounter with Christians, with people in their lives. Mm-hmm. It could be a coworker, it could be a neighbor, a friend, a business associate, but it's someone that uh, shares their faith with them as a Christian and shares the gospel. And now for the first time, 
you know, Jewish people, these Jewish people are exposed to what I would call the case for Christianity, the case for belief in Jesus. Mm-hmm. And it's quite sophisticated and it's compelling. And for Jewish people that have not had a real serious kind of exposure to Jewish learning and Jewish study and a Jewish perspective on the scriptures, which is mm-hmm. invariably the case, um, you know, the Christian case for Jesus can be uh, a serious one and a compelling one. And what happens with those Jews who ultimately do end up uh, converting to Christianity, embracing Jesus as their savior, uh, you know, our experience has been, my personal experience has been that they really are impressed with the Christians they meet and they're, incre- they're impressed with the testimonies they hear and they're impressed with the fervor of Christian worship and they're mm-hmm. impressed with uh, all of the biblical quote-unquote proofs that point to Jesus allegedly mm-hmm. and all of the, the miracles that they read about and all of the miracles that they experience in church etc. Mm. And they say, listen, I can't resist. Um, and and our cha- Yeah, and our challenge is that, you know, it, that it, it's true that you've heard the case for Jesus, but, you know, for the last 2,000 years, Jewish people preferred death to conversion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, wouldn't it be appropriate before you make that very, very serious decision, before you mm-hmm. take that step, which is, uh, from from a Jewish point of view, a, a very, very uh, profound mistake, you know, in the, in the same way that uh, Christianity insists that people who don't believe in Jesus will essentially burn in hell forever. I mean, Judaism takes a very similar perspective to people who worship Jesus as God. I mean, that in the Bible, uh, the one thing God says that he abhors and despises is idolatry. And mm-hmm. idolatry is basically defined as the worship of anything or anyone as God that is not mm-hmm. God. Now, obviously, sure. Christians believe Jesus is God, but again, uh, that may not be the case, and Judaism doesn't believe that Jesus created the world and is God, and therefore, to, to put your faith in him and to worship him would be idolatry. So, the mm-hmm. point here is not uh, to, therefore, insist that Judaism is right, but it's just for people to understand this is a very weighty decision. I mean, that mm-hmm. it, it seems to me, that, at least, that in life, when we're going to make a decision where the consequences are potentially very, very serious, then it makes sense in those situations to be very, very careful and mm. to look both ways before you cross the street. That's an excellent way to, to put it. To so look both ways before you cross the street. What an excellent way to put it. So we're going to go back to the original list. We'll kick off from Genesis. Now, in this case, we're going to try and get through one, two, 14 uh, in the chronological order that they appear, and it, it begins in Genesis chapter 3, right? That's where most of these lists begin. Um, I think that if they had some more imagination, um, they could have started in Genesis chapter 1. <laughs> uh, I mean, when, when you go through this list and you see the, uh, the nature of the connections that are, that are made between the text in Genesis and uh, Jesus, I mean, you realize that with any kind of imagination, you could probably come up with a list of three or four thousand easily just in the book of Genesis. Mm. Um, th- that's how you know flexible 
the, the criteria are here. Well, that's, that's a good point. The, the flexibility of criteria, and this is what people are going to see. Uh, and, and there's, I mean, the, the first two, in fact, are found in, in uh, Genesis 3.15. The first one is that, that, uh, that the Messiah... Now, bear in mind, just a reminder to the listeners, these are, quote-unquote, messianic prophecies. And, and Genesis 3.15 says that uh, the Messiah will be of the seed of a woman, the seed of a woman, and that appears in, in Genesis 3.15. Does this apply to the Messiah? And it's got in brackets here, the virgin birth. Is this what we have in Genesis 3.15? Well, that's the assertion that's being made. I mean, it's important to, to remember that the passage here in Genesis chapter 3 it doesn't mention the Messiah. The assertion here is that this is a foreshadowing of uh, this very, very important doctrine in Christianity, which appears in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke, which is the idea that Jesus was born to a virgin and had to have been born to a virgin. Um, I mean, I think that um, many this, people... This, we're talking about uh, Isaiah chapter 7, right? I mean, yes. how, how do we apply this to Genesis chapter 3? Uh, let me just read it for the listeners. Uh, I'll start from 14, to be fair, because we've got to give some context. This is God talking to the serpent, and he says, Because you have done this, you are accursed more than all cattle... Uh, and more than every beast of the field, on your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. <laughs> By the way, I have seed, capital S, <laughs> her seed, capital S, in the New King James Study Bible. He shall, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Um, where do we get the, the virgin birth and, and something about the Messiah here in this verse? It's just very bizarre. Well, <laughs> so uh, the virgin birth really comes from the reference to her seed. I mean, the passage here speaks about the descendants of Eve as her seed. Because, and, because, of course, women have eggs, they don't have seed, right? Right. I mean, usually the assumption here is that it's the male that has the seed. Mm -hmm. And so when it speaks in this verse about the seed of the woman, it's implying that there's no man here. I mean, that, that it's an unusual birth in that uh, normally, uh, right, normally okay. a, a child would be referred to the seed of the male, but there's no male that's mentioned here, and so it has this seemingly unusual. But if we follow that, if we follow that logic, then aren't we talking about a hermaphrodite or something? I mean, it doesn't talk about God's seed impregnating a woman. It talks about the woman's seed. That that makes no sense in as far as the Christian interpretation of Isaiah chapter seven verse fourteen, right? Well, we'll have to really uh, dig our teeth into Isaiah chapter seven. But you're, you're, you're quite right, meaning that here, if we just stick to the text in this chapter of Genesis, it does refer to the seed of the woman. And if the argument is that there's only the woman here and there's no male, um, so how do we know that it was God that impregnates her? Now, that's not in the text. It's Again, not in the text. Right. That would be uh, uh, an assumption that's being made. And you, you're right. You could argue that she was somehow one of these creatures that is able to get pregnant all by herself. Um, maybe she, I don't know, uh, you know, had both male and female uh, capabilities. These are the kind of ridiculous things that we have to speculate just to, you know, perhaps make this work in as far as what, what uh, Christian interpretation would have us believe. Well, the Christian uh, assumption here is, is really based upon quite a few 
suppositions. Um, the, the most serious supposition is that the reference in this verse to the seed of a woman, to Eve's seed, is unusual, um, meaning that they seem to be all agitated by the fact that it refers to the seed of a woman. Mm-hmm. Um, but the truth is that it's not unusual in the Bible. Uh, the Bible has a number of references to a woman's descendants, a woman's offspring as her seed. Um, meaning that, you know, it's funny that, that um, in, in English we have these different words. You know, we have the words children, offspring, seed. Mm-hmm. And so if the Bible had, you know, was written in English and the Bible said, you know, the offspring of the woman, it wouldn't be so peculiar, or the children of the woman. The fact mm-hmm. that it uses seed of the woman, the word in Hebrew is zera, um, which is also the word used for sperm. So mm-hmm. it, it, it seems unusual that, what do you mean the seed of a woman? We often associate seed with men. But the problem is that you have a number of places in Genesis, actually, which refers to a woman's offspring or progeny as her seed. For example, in Genesis 16.10, God promises Hagar, who was given to Abraham by Sarah as a co-wife. So God promises to Hagar that he will greatly increase her seed. Um, And what I've got, did you say verse 10? I believe it's Genesis 16 verse 10. Yes. So I've got here, uh, the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted uh, for multitude. And now, so there, the word descendants in Hebrew would be seed. Well, th- uh, there you go. All right. right. <laughs> okay. Why not be consistent then and say, I will multiply your seed exceedingly? Well, because... <laughs> Because, we can't have that. <laughs> well, I, th- right, I think that, that I think that um, you know no one's going to argue that Jesus was a descendant of Hagar. Um, I think that Christians would be very happy if there was a promise here to let's say Sarah, and then they would mm-hmm. be able to to see ultimately some promise to Sarah as having a descendant who would be the savior. But here it's a promise to Hagar. And I don't think anyone's going to suggest that Jesus has any kind of connection. No, well, no, that's fair enough. We can't have the Messiah coming from Hagar. We can't do that. That's that wouldn't be proceed. that wouldn't be that proper. Wouldn't, that doesn't work. We can't do that. All right. So but, there's but the an Bible example. does speak about her offspring as her seed, and yeah. also in Genesis 24 verse 60, it speaks to Rebecca that her offspring will inherit the gate of their enemies. Um, we see in Leviticus chapter 22, verse 13, it refers to the priest's daughter. Her offspring is referred to as seed. And in Numbers 5.28, the Sota, the woman who was suspected of adultery and had to drink this uh, concoction mm-hmm. in the temple. So it says in Numbers 5 that if she's innocent, she will bear children. And there again, the word for her children is her seed. Um, and First Samuel chapter 1, Hannah, when she asks for a child for herself, she's asking for Zerah as well. So you have in the Bible many references to a woman's offspring as her seed. So there's no reason to get bent out of shape when we read Genesis 3.15, and it speaks about the seed of a woman. It's just simply a way of speaking about Eve's descendants. Descendants, the offspring. Yeah, and the important thing to remember is that it's not referring to 
one particular descendant, a seed. I mean, it's interesting that Paul, in the book of Galatians, chapter 3, mm-hmm. verse 16, makes this mistake that he finds a passage in Genesis about Abraham's seed, and Paul says, quite erroneously, he said, you see, it doesn't say seeds in the plural, it says to it's his seed, singular. and yeah. that must be, Paul says, one particular descendant, and he says that must be, obviously, Jesus. And the, the fallacy here is that seed in the Bible is referring to descendants, uh, offspring, all of the offspring, and the Bible never speaks about seeds in the plural. The word is always in the singular. It never mm-hmm. distinguishes in the Hebrew between seed and seeds. Yeah. Um, so this passage in Genesis 3 is simply speaking about the descendants, all of the offspring that would come out of this woman, all of her Makes descendants. perfect sense, but that's not the only one, as I said, in Genesis 3.15. There's also, uh, it says here, he will a messianic prophecy, he will bruise Satan's head. And that comes out of uh, 3.15 where, it's, where, where it says, God says to uh, the serpent, not Satan, but it says to the serpent, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, <laughs> we've got snakes here. Boy, do we have snakes. Uh, brown <laughs> snakes, one of the most poisonous snakes in the world. And uh, if ever I get an opportunity to bruise one of their heads, I mean, I'd like to take them off if possible there. We don't see too uh, many here in Toronto. No, I bet you don't. (laughs) But I don't remember that verse. I mean, I don't remember the verse that says, uh, you know, uh, maybe after the temptation of Jesus, when Jesus says to to Satan, um, man shall not live by, by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And then he thus did deliver a roundhouse kick to the head. And Satan did flee, yea, verily. Yeah, that, that <laughs> verse isn't there. I, I tell you what, though, if it was, you know, that'd be great. But it's not there. There's nothing like that. I don't remember Jesus bruising Satan's head. Can you help me? Well, out? it's interesting because, uh, you know, there are many Christian commentaries to the Bible um, which don't really take this as a prophecy about, um, you know, the Messiah somehow in the future. Uh, disposing of Satan and destroying Satan. Um, There are many Christian commentaries that take this passage in Genesis uh, in a very straightforward way, that it's speaking about, uh, in in the simplest sense, in the most straightforward sense, the uh, incredible animosity that would always exist between human beings and snakes. And it says that um, you know, snakes will strike human beings at their heel because mm-hmm. snakes, we're, we're told just in the f- few verses previous to this, that the snake would be cursed that it'll have to crawl on the ground. Mm-hmm. So as an animal that crawls on the ground, it will be able to strike not at our neck, it won't be able to strike uh, in the upper part of our body, it's going to have to strike us, try to bite us. In our heel. At the heel. And, and by the way, th- this is why here on the farm, uh, in spring and summer, we always tell our kids, if you go out into the paddock, you put on your boots. Because yes. our boots come up over our ankles, and uh, we know that they're going to be protected. Uh, otherwise, you just can't guarantee. You can't go out there in your flip-flops. It's, it's way too dangerous. I mean, a brown snake will um, kill you in a matter of minutes. And, uh, and there is that relationship, and boy, do we know about it. Right, and, and those boots will end up, as this verse says, crushing the head of the snake. When, we want to, when the mm-hmm. snake wants to get us, the snake will strike at our heel, and when we want to strike the snake, we're not going to step on his tail, we're going to crush no. his head. 
Um, that's and right. th- that's really what the verse is ultimately saying. It's basically speaking about this enmity between the descendants of Eve, which is all of humanity, all humankind. Mm-hmm. It's interesting, by the way, that this fear of snakes and uh, sort of revulsion of snakes is a universal phenomenon, no matter where you go in the world over the past you know, thousands of years. This passage has been true. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we have this relationship with snakes, which is not a friendly one. And what's interesting is that uh, Christians insist that it's not really only talking about the snake in the garden, that it's somehow uh, referring to this... Uh, the devil. The devil, Satan, this, this spiritual being, um, which is their right to do, meaning that it's, it's certainly there's no crime in claiming that a passage in the Bible symbolizes or somehow has some connection to something else. Um, But it's not in the text, meaning that it's a supposition that's made. And Mm -hmm. once you get into the realm of supposition or of interpretation, it loses the power of proof, meaning that we have to remember that this list of 365 proofs is presented as evidence, as proof. And once your evidence is not really based upon what the text actually says, but it's based upon a supposition uh, in terms of what we think the verse might be uh, symbolizing, yep, symbolizing or referring to, you know, then you get into very, very muddy water. I always teach my classes that once a text can mean anything, it means nothing. Meaning that once you're allowed to say, well, I think that it represents this, or I think it represents that, then you're not really in the realm of proving anything anymore. You're speculating. You're speculating, and you can only prove something when you're basing yourself upon what the text actually says. When it comes to this uh, supposition that's made, that it's really, uh, uh, you know, some reference to uh, you know the Messiah, um, which is not mentioned in the passage at all, but it's again it's a, it's an interpretation, it's a speculation. Mm. The Messiah who will bruise Satan's head again. It's based upon the assumption that it's referring to only one of Eve's descendants, meaning that we saw mm-hmm. the passage is speaking about all of her descendants. There's no reason to assume that it's speaking about one person who will smash. Uh, the snake, or even here the, the the Satan, but the important thing to to recall is that you know the list that that we have here in front of us takes us to Hebrews two fourteen as the as the fulfillment of this passage. Now it says in Hebrews two fourteen that through the death um, of Jesus, basically he would render powerless him who had the power over death, and that is the devil. That meaning that the death of Jesus uh, was uh, supposedly able to destroy the power of the devil. And that's the uh, claim here, that Jesus came that's, to destroy. That's the connection as, as some, sort of, uh, some sort of fulfillment to this part of Genesis 3. But there's no roundhouse kick to the head. Where's the bruise? I want the bruise to Satan's head. Well, we, we have no, no specific verse. What you don't see is that Satan has been destroyed. Meaning that, you know, it's interesting that uh, 1 John 3.8 says that he who practices sin is of the devil. Meaning that uh, we know that even the Christian Bible says that Christians, people that believe in Jesus, still sin. And yet it says here that if you sin, you're of the devil. 
And it's clear then that Jesus did not destroy the power of the devil if people still mm-hmm. sin. Um, even in the among followers of Jesus in the Christian Bible, in First Thessalonians two eighteen, Paul says he wanted to come to see the Thessalonians, but he wasn't able to because he was hindered by the devil. He was hindered by Satan. So we see that that that, that through the death of Jesus, Satan's power was not destroyed. That there's no indication. In fact, in Romans sixteen twenty, uh, Paul writes that Satan will soon be crushed. But obviously it hadn't happened yet when he was writing the book of Romans. That's a good point. So there's no fulfillment, meaning that um, this is one of these passages in Genesis 3, which is really not about the Messiah when we read Genesis. And even if it were about the Messiah, there's no proof that it's talking about Jesus. Right? It could be, if you want to insist that it is speaking about someone who will crush the power of Satan, there's no proof that it's talking about Jesus because Jesus clearly hasn't done that. Um, so it's still uh, a prophecy which, even though uh, Christians insist that Jesus fulfilled it, uh, it's not really so obvious that Genesis 3 is speaking about the Messiah, and it's very clear that it has not been fulfilled by Jesus. Um, Fair enough. Said, and I mean, we we could get into a long conversation about the nature of Satan, but we don't have time for that. Right. We've got to rock and roll. <laughs> We're going to rock and roll. Number three is Genesis chapter 5, verse 24. I'm going to start from 23, if that's all right. This is what it says uh, in our list of 365 messianic prophecies. So all the days of Enoch were 365 years. What a coincidence. 365 years. And there must be something in that. Surely we can make No, we better not. And uh, verse 24. And Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. Now, (laughs) this one, this apparently... Uh, Michael, is the bodily ascension of the Messiah to heaven illustrated in this in this passage? What, what do you make of it? You don't sound convinced. Well, come on, it's meant to be. It's a it's a messianic prophecy fulfilled because you know in what is it? Mark chapter six, verse nineteen. Jesus is is sucked up to uh, to heaven. He's he ascends, and uh, this is the the I guess the prototype of that is is Enoch. At least that's what this verse. Uh, what this list is claiming. Well, it's interesting because the the passage here is certainly not a prophecy. It's not a prediction. It's a narrative that's telling us what happened to Hanoch uh, or Enoch in English. And it's interesting because all it says in the Hebrew is that God had taken him, that uh, he walked with God, but he was no more because God had taken him. Now, it's not really clear what that means that God had taken him. It it could certainly mean that he died. And that's how Rashi understands the passage. No, what do you mean? It's the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> Are you going to take that away from me? It's the Wizard of Oz. He was sucked up into heaven. What a- well, I guess uh, you could suggest that's what happened to him. You know, when it says that he was that God had taken him, it's interesting because you know, we say in English, um, I took his life. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily here mean that God took him bodily up to heaven. Um, I think it's a possible way of reading it. It certainly doesn't uh, exclude that possibility. But the phrase itself is pretty ambiguous. What does it mean that God took him? Um, you know, he was he was no more. That's what it says here, that he was no more. He was basically finished. Um, and this is actually, you know, when you think about it, this is a phrase that we use today. It's not unusual to hear someone say, uh, you know, God took 
so-and-so uh, to mean that um, their life has ended. Yeah, they passed I mean, away. God took them. You hear that today. I think that you know the the phrase itself is not clear, and um, it's certainly not predicting anything in the future. It's just saying what happened to Hanoch. It's not a prophecy here. Um, mm. It's a narrative about what happened to uh, this particular person, and there's nothing in the passage which connects this to the Messiah. Um, now we know that in the Bible there are bodily ascensions to heaven and happened to Elijah in the second book of Kings. Elijah the prophet is basically taken right up to heaven without dying. Um, but you know, even if we wanted to say, for example, if reading Genesis five, that this mysterious verse which speaks about God taking Hanoch has some kind of a connection to a person in the future who would be taken up to heaven, mm -hmm. it's not clear in this passage that it's talking about it would happen to the Messiah. And even if it was, it's, there's no proof that Jesus did this, meaning that we don't have any reason to assume that Jesus was taken alive up to heaven. That's a, a belief mm -hmm. and an assertion that Christians make. But we have to remember that the, the claim here is that if we read the the Hebrew Scriptures with an open mind and an open heart, we will see clearly that it points to Jesus, that we mm -hmm. have overwhelming evidence. We have 365 uh, pieces of evidence that point clearly and directly and unambiguously to Jesus. Well, this and most of these passages only work if you only begin the entire investigation with the assumptions that Christianity makes about Jesus, meaning if you assume that he was the Messiah and God took him up to heaven bodily, then if this passage in Genesis 5 is a prophecy about the Messiah who would be taken up to heaven, uh, then it would be talking about Jesus. But we have hmm. uh, you know, a half a dozen assumptions there. That are not we do. Really we have. We have even the even the description in the list that we're looking at says that it's an illustration. Uh, how can a messianic prophecy be an illustration? It's just not. Uh, it, it's just so nebulous, isn't it? Yeah, this is what we referred to last week as a type or a shadow. Mm -hmm. That this is a, a belief that Christians have. Um, you know, their belief that Jesus was brought to heaven, and they see this as as a foreshadowing of that. But again, mm. it's, it's, it's not really working in the way they would like it to work, meaning that they would like um, us to think that here is another piece of evidence that um, basically seals the deal and makes it clear that mm. Jesus was the Messiah. And again, we just have to look at this passage and see it's not a prophecy, it's a narrative, it's not talking about the Messiah, and all it is is that if you make all the assumptions that Christians want to make about it, meaning that if we assume it is speaking about someone that's taken up to heaven bodily, uh, then all you could say is that it, it somehow corresponds with what Jesus, what, what Christians believe about Jesus. But it only works retroactively, meaning it's basically circular reasoning or, um, you know, working backward. It doesn't go from Genesis to Jesus. That's what I want to really emphasize. Mm. You can certainly go from Jesus back to Genesis, meaning once you have your beliefs about Jesus cemented, 
you can then go back to Genesis and say, oh, you see, Genesis seems to be alluding to, symbolizing, it's a, it's a foreshadowing of what we already believe. But what can't happen, what doesn't work, is to say that by reading Genesis, you're going to arrive at Jesus being the Messiah. That's, that doesn't work hmm. because Genesis is, again, not a prophecy, and it's not about the Messiah, and, uh, and again, it's not clearly speaking about someone who's translated up to heaven alive. So, hmm. you know, it only works retroactively, sort of through circular reasoning, if you already believe in Jesus, and it only works in that sense if you have to make quite a few assumptions about what the text Fair really enough. means. There it is. Number four, Genesis. Now, this one has really got me. I, I don't know what to make of this at all. Genesis chapter 9, verse 26 and 27. Now, the notes on this list say the God of Shem will be the son of Shem. But this is what the verse says. It says, and he said, blessed be the Lord, may God of Shem and may Can uh, Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and may he dwell in the tents of Shem and may Canaan be his servant. I, I don't understand. It says in, in the notes here of this list, the God of Shem will be the son of Shem. Where do they? I don't understand. Yeah, this is basically what you would simply call uh, in simple English a mistake. <laughs> that, that right. there, there's no way of getting from the text in Genesis to what they're claiming it means. Um, there's no way of even misreading this verse uh, to have it say that God will be the son of Shem. Um, so this is just a blunder. And all that the passage really is saying is that God uh, will essentially dwell in the tents of Shem. Now, Shem, we know, is, um, is going to be the, the son of uh, Noah. That's going to be the mm -hmm. forerunner of Abraham. Abraham yep. descends from Shem. And the idea is that um, God will ultimately dwell in the tabernacle and later in the temple. Those are called the dwelling places of God. Mm -hmm. uh, and ultimately in the final temple that will be rebuilt as we read in the book of Ezekiel. Um, so all this is really saying is that God, the creator, will dwell in the tents. And the tent, you know, the, the, the um, tabernacle is almost mm -hmm. referred to as a tent. Um, yes. So that's all the verse is saying. And there's, there's just nothing that's here that... Uh, absolutely nothing. That's yeah. what I thought it was saying. It just it makes perfect sense when you read it uh, in, in, in its context. But uh, the assertion that they're making is um, very difficult and problematic. We're not doing too well so far for the first two. I'm, I'm not convinced. Are you convinced? Uh, I'm not going to be going to church this Sunday yet. All right, not yet. Well, we better move to five and see if that'll do it. Here's a familiar verse and one that <laughs> is uh, very timely, I think, with everything going on in Israel at the moment. Genesis 12, verse 3, it says, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you, and in you, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's a, it's a now, beautiful passage. It's a beautiful, it, it, it really is. According to this list, 365 Messianic prophecies, according to this list, as Abraham's seed will bless all nations. What, what, what's it getting at there? You know, the, um, you know, they say that sometimes when you read the Bible in translation, it's like kissing your mother through a veil. Um, <laughs> you, you lose so much when you're reading the Bible in English. And there's something mm -hmm. in the Hebrew here 
that uh, is just very, very significant. You know, it speaks about blessing and cursing. And the, um, the Bible speaks about God who will bless those who bless the Jewish people, the descendants of Abraham. And mm-hmm. there the word is the same word. It's the um, root baruch, um, beis reish chaf. So there you have uh, basically a parallelism that those who bless you, I will bless. But when it comes to the word for cursing, the Bible uses two different words in the Hebrew. Now, it doesn't come through in English because it just says those who curse you, I will curse. But in, in the Hebrew, it says those that curse you, mikalelcha, because um, that word can mean a curse, a klala. But it doesn't use the same Hebrew word for I will curse. Um, it changes and says I will curse is aor. And that is another word in Hebrew that can mean to curse. But another way of translating it is that I will show the light. Meaning that what the verse is you know, not clearly saying, but it, it's a beautiful rendering of the verses. Those that bless you I will bless. But those that curse you, I will show the light. Meaning that ultimately, the, the enemies of the Jewish people will one day come to see the truth. Mm-hmm. And the passage here is, again, not about one particular descendant of Abraham. It's speaking when it says that the seed of Abraham, right? It, it refers to all of the descendants of Abraham. And all the verse is really saying um, is that the entire world will be blessed through the nation that Abraham will be the progenitor of. Um, And we see this in countless passages in the Bible. Um, You know, the last chapters of Isaiah, um, chapter 60 in Isaiah, which speaks about the nations of the world coming to the light of the Jewish Mm. people and the prophet Zechariah, who says that one day, you know, 10 people from every nation of the world will grab hold of the clothing of a Jew and say, we want to come follow you. We've heard God is with you. Mm. So the, the Bible speaks about the, these people who God calls his witnesses and who were to be a, uh, a, kohanim, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation and a light to the nations. So the Bible says that that's our task and that one day the world will come to our light. And so that's essentially what this verse is saying, that that the descendants of Abraham will be ultimately a blessing to all the nations of the world. Now, even if you want to say, by the way, that it is referring to one descendant of Abraham, which is incorrect grammatically, but even if you were to read it that way, how do we know that it's referring to Jesus? Maybe it's another descendant of Abraham, like Moses or David. Mm. So, again, it's based upon here, the, 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 the Christian reading is based upon a real a, a misreading of the Hebrew to say it's talking about one descendant of Abraham because it misreads the word seed. And yep. even if they insist on that mistranslation, uh, it doesn't have to refer to the pers- person they think it's referring to. We could certainly Amen. say that Moses was a great blessing to the world and David was certainly a great blessing to the world. Amen. And so, it's, again, as with uh, the first example in 3.15, it's a little bit of trickery with the word seed. And the next one is no, ex- uh, no exception. It it's, uh, falls into the same category, Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. And it says, uh, then the Lord appeared to Abram and said to your... Now, I've got in, in my New King James study, Bible, I've got to your descendants, I will give this land. And there he builds an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now, what's interesting, by the way, is that all it's really saying here is that 
there's a promise that the land of Israel will be given to Abraham's children. Um, so there's nothing here about the Messiah coming one day, nothing here about a particular descendant of Abraham. Uh, th this is simply a, a passage which is saying the promise made to Abraham's seed is that they would inherit the land of Israel. Um, I don't know how we get from that to uh, the gospel, <laughs> but um, there you but, have but it. They, they think there's a connection. Genesis chapter 14, verse 18. Now, I've got... Good heavens, apparently there's three messianic prophecies fulfilled in this, this one verse alone. This, of course, is Melchizedek. This is verse 18. It says, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Oh, this is the, don't, of course, this is the precursor to, this is the, 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 the prophecy of, that he was having communion. Don't you see? This is the, uh, the Eucharist. Why did Melchizedek. I it, well, you, 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 I, I have, don't know. You I have a, these scales over my eyes. You have a veil over your face. This is the <laughs> problem, you see. You need me to tell you. Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God most high, and he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of God most high, uh, possessor of heaven and earth, and so on and so forth. Now, uh, in, this one, in this one verse of 18, uh, it says that a priest after Melchizedek, this verse doesn't say anything about a priest after Melchizedek. This is an assertion made in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20. It talks about uh, uh, the next one, number eight, a king also. I don't know what it's alluding to there. And number nine of the Messianic prophecies list, the Last Supper foreshadowed. See? The Eucharist. It's <laughs> at communion. Well, this is a great example of what we'd call double building or triple building. I mean, that here you have one verse, which is... Uh, really counted as three different prophecies from this list of 365. You know, it reminds me when I was a kid, most people probably when we were kids, and you had to uh, come up with your first resume for your first job, you probably didn't have that many things that you did, you know, before your first job, and you had to really mm -hmm. stretch things to squeeze out as many possible sure. uh, jobs that you could. So, you know, it, it's sort of strange that there are taking this one passage in Genesis 14:18 and claiming that it uh, has three messianic prophecies here. Um, you know, the, the, the name of Malkitzedek, um, you know, in, in, in Hebrew, so it says, it says here that it, it, it foreshadows a king of peace and righteousness. Obviously, they're asserting that, that Jesus was a king of peace and righteousness. So, um, Malkitzedek means king of righteousness, and he mm -hmm. was called in this passage Melech Shalem. Um, now, it, it seems to be talking about a place called Shalem, uh, or in English, Sal Salem, um, mm -hmm. but it can be related to the word Shalom, peace. So here you have in the, the, this verse alluding to the idea that this person, Malkitzedek, somehow is connected to both peace and righteousness. Um, but again, we have here uh, a, a narrative. There's no prophecy here. It's not predicting anything. It's it's just a story we're reading. It mentions this character named Malchitzedek. Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that he brought out bread and wine, you know, it, it's 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 a food that's it, it's food that's served at about fifty or sixty percent of the meals eaten by most people in the world. So sure. it's very difficult to say that somehow this passage is referring to the Last Supper uh, that Jesus ate. It's interesting also, by the way, that according to the Synoptic Gospels, the Last Supper would have been a Passover Seder, at which case they wouldn't have had bread. Um, they would have been eating a matzah. That's a very good point. <laughs> there you go, that's right. <laughs> but, um, again, when you read this passage, Genesis, just you know, for its 
in its own context. Um, it's not talking about a Passover Seder. It's not talking about any kind of a special meal that's going to be eaten by the Messiah. The, the passage really has nothing to do with the Messiah at all. It's just something that is read into it by Christians that are trying to find um, allusions to their beliefs in the Bible. And again, I just want to repeat that. This is very important. There's a difference between uh, getting from our text to a belief in Jesus, um, which really is quite impossible, and, and that's not what's happening. The Christian already begins with their belief in Jesus and that his Last Supper had matzah and wine and that you know, they find this as somehow foreshadowing that which they already believe. But it's important to emphasize that um, finding uh, passages in the Bible that have some kind of an illusion or, or a veiled illusion or hidden illusion to things you already believe is a far cry from being able to prove those beliefs from these passages. Mm. Um, so again, there would be no one, uh, and this is another technique that I would recommend. You know, uh, it's obvious why Christians might be able to read their beliefs back into this passage, but the critical test would be, would anyone reading this passage way before Christianity make the interpretations that Christians make? And you could apply that same criteria to virtually all of the texts we'll be reading. I think that mm -hmm. we can understand why Christians get excited about these texts because they have some kind of a resonance with what they already believe. But the question to ask is, would anyone reading these texts before Christianity have this kind of interpretation? Meaning anyone reading Genesis 14, 18, let's say in the times uh, of Jeremiah the prophet, where they mm -hmm. read Genesis 14, 18, and said, oh, look at this. This is a very, very critical piece of the puzzle to help us identify who the Messiah is going to be because it's telling us that the last meal the Messiah is going to eat is going to be a meal that has bread and wine. Now, you know, even if that is what the passage means, it certainly <laughs> wouldn't prove anything about Jesus because half the free world eats food with meals That's with bread exactly and wine. Right. There it is. Now, the, the, the next one's, again, a little bit of trickery with the word seed. This is Genesis seventeen nineteen. It refers to the seed of Isaac. Um, same rule applies as we discussed before? Yeah, and, and the other problem is that it's not only referring to all the descendants of Isaac, but what is it saying here about the descendants of Isaac? It's only telling us here that God is making a special covenant, an eternal covenant, with the descendants of Isaac. There's nothing here about the Messiah, nothing here about Jesus, nothing here about the gospel. It, it's simply a passage which is telling us that God is making a special covenant, a promise to the descendants of Isaac, to the Jewish people, and uh, you can't really get more out of this passage. Um, so mm. it's really hard to see why um, it makes it onto this list, because there's no indication here that this passage has anything to do with the coming of the Messiah, you know, or anything to do with the life of Jesus. That's bizarre, isn't it? So it says, then God said, no, Sarah, your wife shall bear a son and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. What, what has, how, what has this got to do with Jesus? Utterly bizarre. Well, I mean, the one thing I could say is that as a, a, a member of the Jewish people, you know, Jesus would be included in God's covenant. 
he is also part of the covenant. You can say uh, that, of course. But it would apply to all Jewish people equally, and Jesus would not be special in that regard. Again, with the word seed, Genesis, this is number 11, Genesis 21, verse 12, it says, But God said to Abraham, Do not let it be displease, displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of your bondwoman. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice, for in Isaac your seed shall be called. Now, interestingly, uh, I mentioned in, in Genesis uh, in the New King James Study Bible, seed was capitalized in uh, 315. Here it's not capitalized, so the New King James uh, doesn't seem to think that this has any significance, but this list of 365 messianic prophecies thinks that this is significant, and uh, indeed they have applied a capital uh, on Genesis 12, uh, 21 verse 12. Yeah, I mean, th this passage is, again, very clear in terms of what it really is speaking about. It's saying to Abraham that even though he's going to have children through Hagar, um, that his family line, his, his ultimate family, will be uh, considered only the descendants that he has through uh, Sarah and Isaac, meaning that mm -hmm. it's really, the context here is quite clear, that it's really... Uh, focusing on, you know, who are Abraham's ultimate descendants going to be? Meaning that when we speak about the family of Abraham, it's true that uh, Ishmael is a descendant of Abraham, but in terms of the people, the special people that Abraham will be fathering, it's going through the um, line of Isaac, we're told here. Now, this has absolutely nothing to do with the coming of the Messiah, nothing to do with Jesus. It's just speaking about, in this passage, um, you know, which line of Abraham's family will be the chosen line. Mm. Um, so again, we have here basically a, a verse that has absolutely nothing to do with uh, the Christian uh, message. And it's even okay. hard to understand why this kind of a verse makes it onto the list. It's because you need 365. You need one for every day of the year, and you've got to squeeze, you've got to scrape the bottom of the barrel and make it work. Here we are in... Necessity <laughs> is a mother of invention. <laughs> That's exactly right. Number 12. Number 12. We're flying through it. Genesis uh, chapter 22, verse 8. It says, And Abraham said, My son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. So the two of them went together. There it is. You're going to church, see? You're going to church on Sunday. <laughs> This, unfortunately, doesn't do it for me either. Uh, oh. Again, this is a great example because, you know, we know from the Gospel of John that Jesus is called the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Mm -hmm. So, again, once you come to Genesis with the prior belief that the Messiah is the Lamb of God, so here you have a passage in Genesis which speaks about a lamb. So, obviously, it must be referring to Jesus. Um, again, it's a perfect illustration of how the Christian approach is really one that works backwards. You go from the New Testament back to Genesis, but I would insist that it is impossible to go from Genesis to the Christian gospel because no one reading Genesis 22 prior to Christianity would have walked away assuming that this passage contains any kind of prophecy about the Messiah, uh, any kind of connection to the coming of the Messiah. This is part of the narrative where, uh, you know, Isaac is asking, look, Dad, Abraham, I see you have the knife and you have the wood, and where is the lamb? And so he's told that God is going to provide the lamb. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting, by the way, that uh, 
it couldn't really be speaking about Jesus because it's very clear from this passage that this lamb was supposed to be a burnt offering. That in verse 3, Abraham takes the wood and it's called an olah. An olah mm-hmm. in Hebrew is an, a, an offering that's completely consumed on the fire. And in verse 9, he arranges the wood on the altar. So when finally the lamb is provided and the Bible says, here in this chapter that Abraham offered the lamb, it was offered as a burnt offering, which obviously Jesus was never burnt. Um, so even symbolically, this would not really uh, associate with Jesus. Well, no, I mean, if, if we have to really, really search through the Torah to find uh, a, a, a lamb that is offered for sin that is burnt, um, I, I did this, and I mean, if we can just spend a little bit of time here, the only one that I could find was in uh, Leviticus chapter 5. I think it's from verse 14 and on. And it says that uh, uh, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, If a person commits a trespass and sins unintentionally in regard to the holy things of the Lord, then he shall bring to the Lord as his trespass offering a ram without blemish from the flock with your valuation in shekels of silver according to the shekel of the sanctuary. Uh, as a trespass offering, and he shall take, he shall make restitution for the harm that he has done in regard to the holy thing, and shall add one fifth to it and give it to the priest. So the priest shall make atonement for him with the ram of the trespass offering, and it shall be forgiven him. Now, is this is this uh, is this ram a a burnt offering? So the passage in Leviticus you're reading is not about a sin offering, which was called the chatat. But you're reading about a special uh, offering that was called an asham, uh, the guilt offering or the trespass offering. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's interesting because um, this passage here in Genesis, you know, when Abraham brings this sacrifice, <clears throat> there's no indication that this lamb is being offered uh, for sin. Uh, you know, it's very clear when we read the Bible that offerings, sacrifices were brought for many reasons. Mm. Um, often they were brought just to express closeness to God, to express mm-hmm. thanksgiving to God, to express some positive emotions. And it's interesting that when John identifies Jesus as the Paschal Lamb, um, it's a peculiar association to make with Jesus because the Passover Lamb was not brought for the purpose of atonement for sin. It was brought as a commemoration of an event in Jewish history. Mm, um, so if you know the Christian Bible wanted to make some analog to Jesus, the most appropriate analog would have been the Yom Kippur scapegoat, you know, the, the animal that was offered that took upon itself the sins oh, the, of the, the Jewish people. The, the sins, but, but, but they can't do that because the, the, the scapegoat is, is led off into the wilderness. Yes. Uh, there's the goat for Azel. It doesn't die. It's gone. I mean, Well, we it's interesting do- that the Bible doesn't speak about it being killed, right? The Bible just says it's sent off into the wilderness. Yeah. Um, the, wouldn't, the, it, wouldn't it have been better if, if John the Baptist had said, behold, the, um, uh, the, the bull? Uh, of God that comes and takes away the sin. I mean, isn't the bull the sin offering? So the the only animal on the Day of Atonement that took it took upon itself the sins of all the people, though, was the scapegoat. Well, that's the other true. offerings were offerings for a limited. Uh, for example, one was for the high priest and his family, and one was to atone only for the impurities that came into the temple. 
so the only analog that really would have been appropriate for Jesus as a sacrifice would have been the scapegoat uh, of Yom Kippur because that was the animal that we're told bore the sins of all the people but that was never the uh, analog that was offered by the Christian Bible the Christian Bible insists that Jesus was the Paschal Lamb um, mm. which again has nothing to do with the atonement for sin no, nothing to, now all of that aside all of that aside it's, it's neither here nor there because in verse 13 of Genesis 22 this, uh, this prophecy if you like is fulfilled it says, Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket by its horn. So Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. Exactly, meaning that this passage, when it says in verse 8 that God would provide the, the uh, lamb, um, it's not alluding to some kind of a prediction that's going to happen in thousands of years. It's part of the story where a few verses later the, the, this animal is provided. Um, mm-hmm. as it just indicated. So again, this is again a passage where it's not a prophetic prediction about uh, the Messiah coming in the future. It's We understand this passage simply in its own context that Isaac notices there's no sacrifice, there's no animal. Uh, he didn't realize he was supposed to be sacrificed. Um, Abraham says, you know, in complete faith that God's going to provide the Mm-hmm. Uh, lamb, which is what happened. God did provide an alternative. It happened. It's yeah. fulfilled. End of story. <laughs> and End of story. There's no reason to uh, look at this story in Genesis and say, well, obviously it's you know a pro- prophecy about the coming of the Messiah. Um, and obviously it's talking about Jesus. I mean, again, there's nothing here about the Messiah. And if a person was hell-bent on insisting that it's talking about the Messiah, again, there's no proof that it's speaking about Jesus. Um, It would just be an allusion to the Messiah coming one day. Number 13, we're almost there. Number 13 of the 365 uh, Messianic prophecies, Genesis, we're still there in chapter 22. This is verse 18, and it says, in your, we're doing the seed again, in your seed. Now, again, in my New King James, it's still got a lowercase s, unlike 315, where it decided it better put a capital S. It's got a lowercase, so it doesn't agree with this list. But it says, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, again, we're reiterating uh, Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, right? Yeah, I mean, again, this is basically a continuation of the promise that God made to Abraham, where God said to Abraham, through your descendants, you know, the nations will be blessed. And here, God says this to Isaac, that Isaac's, through Isaac's seed, uh, the nations will be blessed. And, mm. uh, you know, there's no reason to read anything more into this. Okay. Um, so. You know, as I said before, you know, if they had any imagination, they could have found thousands of uh, proof texts here because so you what, have... What you're saying is is if you if it was up to you to make this list, you would have done a better job. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think that <laughs> if I sat down, you know, because again, you, you know, you could say... You know, here's, uh, I'll just give you a simple example. You know, sure. here's someone in Genesis that's walking around with a robe. Well, Jesus wore a robe, so this must be some allusion to Jesus. If you wanted to basically find <laughs> every possible, and you could see in just the few that we did so far how uh, much latitude they took in interpreting these passages, mm-hmm. um, you know, where you know, someone that brings out, uh, you know, bread and wine to serve at a meal, that somehow automatically becomes the Eucharist and the Last Supper. Um, you know, you could find easily 
many, many more things that the text in the Bible has in common uh, with Jesus. You know, if mm. someone walks in the Bible, well, Jesus walked. And if someone right. went down to sleep, <laughs> Jesus went down to sleep. Um, you know, it, 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 think about how many passages in Genesis speak about people's seed. So sure. every time you have the word seed, it's very easy to get very excited and say, oh, look, it's talking about this special person. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I think that, uh, you know, if we take the criteria that is used to select these kind of passages, it could easily have been expanded to several thousand. Um, but thankfully, we're not going to go through that many. <laughs> no, <laughs> we're not doing that. In fact, the last one we want to look at today, again, a little bit of trickery with the word seed, Genesis 26, and they've got verses 2 to 5, which says, uh, Then the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Live in the land uh, which I shall tell you. Dwell in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants uh, I give all these lands, and I will perform the oath which I swore to Abraham your father. I will make your descendants multiply as the stars of heaven. I will give your descendants all these lands And in your seed, lowercase s, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed again. And uh, we've already spoken about that. Boy, I tell you what, it really does mess with the word seed uh, repeatedly in this list at the beginning. And here, the the list here uh, makes the assertion that it's, um, this is foreshadowing um, Isaac's seed that will be promised as the Redeemer. That's what it says in this list. Now, when we just read this passage in Genesis 26, it says nothing about a redeemer. Um, It just basically speaks about the descendants of Isaac inheriting the land of Israel. And that... uh, No, no, no. It's got to have... They can't just... There's got to be... I'm going to read it again. Wait. There's got to be the word (laughs) redeemer. No, I mean, you can't just put in a word like that. It's got to be here. Just let me look again. Look in the fine Uh, print. perform Perform the oath. I don't even have any asterisks or anything with the fine print. Uh, I'll make your descendants multiply the seeds, uh, stars of heaven, uh, descendants of the land. Well, it's got to be in the next verse. Hang on. Uh, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Well, there's nothing in here that says anything about a redeemer. Where do they get that? Uh, that's a good question. Um, All right. Well, you know, we have seen already uh, a dozen or so passages where this the insistence that we're being told something very clearly about the coming of the Messiah, the Redeemer. Uh, And the one thing we've seen so far is that there's nothing clear at all. Um, And I think that's, again, let me just, I guess, as we're closing up tonight, say that when we're studying the Bible, we want to see what the Bible teaches clearly and consistently. I mean, what is the Bible really teaching us? And when we read the Bible, we shouldn't be interested in trying to see how much of our preconceptions we can squeeze back into the Bible. Um, you know, it, it's it, it's not a it's not really uh, the way the Bible should be studied. We should try and mm-hmm. study the Bible for what it actually teaches and what it mm-hmm. teaches clearly. And the one thing we've seen through all these passages is that not one of them is a clear reference to the coming of the Messiah. Um, and just as a footnote to that, even if they were, none of them would be clearly pointing to Jesus exclusively, meaning that, that basically what all of these passages have in common is the assumption that they're talking about the Messiah 
and the assumption that that Messiah is Jesus. And these passages really don't point to either of these two ideas. They don't really refer to the Messiah, and they don't clearly identify Jesus. These are basically a dozen or so passages where people that have a preconceived belief, not based upon what the Bible says, um, that's the important part of it. They have this belief independent of what the Bible says, and then they're able to somehow very creatively and by a very loose and uh, expansive and poetic and subjective reading of these passages find some kind of veiled illusion in type shadow etc to what they already believe which is fine everyone has the right to do that but i think mm -hmm. they have to be careful before they say well look the, we believe that the bible clearly proves with many many uh pieces of evidence that jesus was the messiah i think that's where they're going to fall short that's right. And as you said uh, earlier on, look both ways before you cross the road. So you're not going to church on Sunday. We, have, we haven't, com haven't convinced you thus far. And we've gone through the first 14. Uh, surely they're going to get better. I mean, we've got 365 of them. Next week, we're going to kick off from Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, for those who want to do their homework, because there's a, there's a whole list. One, two, three, four, five, apparently, uh, messianic prophecies fulfilled of the 365 messianic prophecies that we're looking at. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Thank you, my friend, Rabbi Michael Skovac of Jews for Judaism uh, in Canada. Jewsforjudaism.ca. Jewsforjudaism.ca is the website. You can also find him on Facebook and, of course, on YouTube. Uh, you've, it's it's uh, the Jews for Judaism YouTube channel. Is that correct? That's correct. And all of those links, by the way, are, I do believe, are on the website, jewsforjudaism.ca. Do go there and have a look because there's an enormous amount of information that you can get for free on that website. It's an excellent website. My friend, once again, thank you for coming back onto Truth To You and going through this list with us. I'm looking forward to speaking with you very soon. It sounds like a great proposition. We'll be there next, year, next week with you, God willing. <laughs> Doing that, we're having fun. In the meantime, dear listeners, be blessed and be set apart by the truth of our Father's Word. Shalom. Shalom.